Welcome, everybody. My name is Ramachandra Guha. I'm at LSE Ideas. And I'm the uh, moderator of this panel today, for which we have four very gifted and very accomplished and highly regarded participants. From my left, Professor Moitrish Ghatak of the <coughs> Department of Economics, a very well-known development economist who's worked on microfinance, uh, inequality, agriculture, and other subjects. On my immediate left, Patrick French, historian and biographer, uh, author of landmark works on V.S. Naipaul, Francis Young Husband, <coughs> and the Partition of India, among other books. Uh, and most recently, uh, a book on India called India Portrait, which will be on sale immediately after today's event. On my right, Dr. Mukulika Banerjee, whose um, first book was a brilliant study of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan called the Pathan Anand. I think uh, among her accomplishments is that she was the first and possibly last Indian anthropologist ever to do field work in those very contested areas. Maybe not the last, but the last for some time at least. And has since done work on minorities in India and on electoral democracy. And on our extreme right, Professor Sunil Khinani of <coughs> King's College London, who started as a historian of uh, France, then wrote a wonderful book called The Idea of India, and is now working on Jawaharlal Nehru. So we have a panel which is, in my view, beautifully balanced. We have an economist, a historian, an anthropologist, and a political theorist. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Bad joke, all right. <laughs> uh, we have two insiders, two LSE faculty, two outsiders, and someone in the middle who is at the moment an insider, but soon to be an outsider. <laughs> uh, and we uh, will have about 45 minutes which I will sort of get the panel to take up different questions in turn, and then we'll, uh, as always, open it up to the audience. So I'm going to begin uh, with last week's news, uh, which may not be next week's news, uh, but is still uh, interesting and important enough. Last week, the results were announced for five state elections in India, uh, and one of those was the state of Uttar Pradesh, which has more people than France and Germany combined. Uh, so it was an election of considerable importance, but there were other state elections too. And um, the results were striking. Uttar Pradesh now has a chief minister who's uh, uh, less than 40 years old, which is sort of uh, in the gerontocracy that is Indian democracy. It's something of epic importance that you have a 30-year-old chief minister in the largest state. The ruling Congress party fared much worse than it was expected and so on. But I'm not going to discuss the results. I'm going to raise some, I'm going to ask each one of the panel in turn uh, uh, to, ra uh, 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 to raise some, uh, about how these elections raise some larger questions about where Indian democracy is going. And I'm going to start with Mukulika because she's finishing a book on, uh, based on many years field work on elections as what you call a kind of festival or theater of democracy. And insofar as these, uh, there's much else wrong with India, as you know. Uh, but the Election Commission, insofar as it has overseen a free and fair election, I mean, how would you see this in the context of your own work? Just the enactment of this, these multiple elections in the context of your own work on, on democracy. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ram. Um, like all other elections, this one, too, had an extraordinarily high turnout. Uh, 
Alongside UP, uh, there, was, there were four other states that went to the polls. There was Punjab, Goa, Uttarakhand, and Manipur. And in Goa, for instance, voter turnout was 82%. UP's elections was held in six phases, seven phases, I think, this time, uh, to make sure that every bit that went to the polls was very carefully policed and um, held to scrutiny by the Election Commission. So as far as the Election Commission goes, it, in that sense, it was a very typical election. There was, some, there was some atypical drama, which I think is symptomatic of something bigger, which was the Congress Party's challenge through various individuals of the Election Commission's um, model code of conduct, which is what it imposes when India goes to elections every time. So the whole country, every time there's an Indian election, we've seen this repeatedly, uh, imposes what the Election Commission imposes what's called a modal code of, a code of conduct, where the entire country moves into a different gear. The rules are changed, politicians are under close scrutiny, governments cannot announce any new schemes, um, and therefore uh, everybody has to be in a sense on best behavior. And the Election Commission has uh, a huge amount of power in regulating this. Now this was challenged, I think, twice in, in, during the UP elections. And the way the Election Commission responded to it and came down very harshly, sometimes perhaps a bit too officiously, uh, raised the debate about whether politicians, in fact, what we need to be doing about preserving institutions like the Election Commission, which to my mind is probably one of the cornerstones of India's record as an Indian democracy and absolutely of all the public institutions that should be preserved in India, uh, the Election Commission is uh, crucial to it. But if you want, I mean, in terms of... Uh, the second point, obviously we'll come back to these things uh, later, but the second point to make uh, after the election commission is about the electorate itself. The voter turnout was high, but also uh, when the results came out last week of all the five states, and this had been going on for six or seven weeks, right, the elections, uh, it was really interesting to see that it was impossible to call the results. And this, in a sense, is fairly typical, again, of most Indian elections, where you really cannot predict how the voters will vote. And this is significant. In the case of Uttarakhand, for instance, a small state, which used to belong to UP, but now is a separate state, uh, there was such a close finish that there's literally one seat between the Congress and the BJP, and today the Congress has been invited to form the government and name their chief minister. In Uttar Pradesh, too, there was a very dramatic uh, difference of seats between the winning Samajwadi Party and the PSP, the main opposition. But actually the vote share difference was about 4% uh, between them. And what has emerged in the results of this particular election is a genuine uh, category of a floating voter who is impossible to call. You don't know how they're going to vote. And I think that is partly contributed by the fact, for, it, for instance, this time, there were something like one million new voters because of, of the new ones who were registered uh, between the last election and this. So there's an unpredictability of the electorate combined with its commitment to voting that, again, I think is fairly typical of Indian elections. Uh, thank you, Mukurika. Mukurika used this very interesting phrase, Patrick, the floating voter. Uh, uh, so contrary to what uh, journalists and even some political leaders sometimes think, Indians don't vote in vote banks. It's not as if every Muslim, every Dalit, every tribal votes together. So this, I'm very intrigued by your, your concept of floating voter. But the paradox, as your work shows, Patrick, is uh, that there are no floating parties and there are not even any floating candidates. Often that, uh, uh, as, your, as you show in your recent work so strikingly, that 
you have uh, increasingly in, in, uh, political parties run as family firms, and even individual constituencies really going from father to son or husband to widow. And uh, how does one overcome this extraordinary, I mean, how do you see this extraordinary, in a sense, deficit? The fact that elections are conducted fairly is great, but political parties are, uh, are not open institutions, and you know, your work really shows this very sadly. Well, th th that, that is the flaw. I mean, that, that is the flaw in, in, in Indian democracy, I think. It's the fact that, you know, I, I, was, I was listening a few months ago to a, a discussion on BBC Start the Week on Radio 4, and somebody had written a book about democracy and spoke for perhaps eight or 12 minutes about democracy and what it was and what it did around the world. India was not even mentioned. And yet it seems to me that India is actually really at the heart of how democracy can evolve. I don't think anybody would, would have imagined in 1950 when, when the Constitution came in that you would have such a hyper-developed form of democracy where you have uh, vote fractionalization in places like UP, which could never have been envisaged, and in which people uh, very often don't do what is expected of them. Uh, Again and again, you find people having uh, assumptions that a certain community will vote a certain way. But particularly in the UP results, you can see that, uh, for example, the way that a proportion of the Dalit vote swung away from Mayawati was to do with the fact that unless certain things are delivered in the way that is expected, then uh, all expectations among, among voters are, are really up for grabs. And I think that that is really a change of the last five or, 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 or perhaps 15 years. And uh, if you like, one of the reasons why Congress did so bad in, in this election, certainly in UP, was the fact that they were still on the old paradigm, the idea of noblesse oblige, the idea that as Rahul Gandhi said in some of his speeches, you know, we have given you these things from Delhi, rather than saying, well, the, these are, are, are your demands that you made, these are, what you, these are the things that you are entitled to. Uh, you know, the idea of giving things from Delhi, well, in fact, what you're saying is we have taken money from the Indian taxpayer and we've given it back to you. So it's, a kind of, it's almost looking at it uh, the wrong way around. So, so, so you have this highly developed form of democracy. Uh, and at the same time, you have, uh, as Makulika said, the, the Indian Election Commission is extraordinarily uh, effective. I mean, I, I, in the 2009 general election, I watched it in action, and it was really quite overwhelming how, uh, how effective they were at making candidates do uh, what they said. But the one thing that does not function is internal democracy within the parties, as, as Ram mentioned. And this is something that is getting worse and worse. Uh, the survey that I did was only of Lok Sabha MPs, but there's a direct correlation between age and heredity. If you, if you plot a graph between uh, MPs over the age of 70, uh, almost none of them are from political families. Almost every MP got into Parliament on merit, whereas if you then go to MPs under the age of 30, every single one of them, 100%, are the sons and daughters of eminent politicians. And there's a direct straight line between people uh, in the different... Uh, uh, you know, categories of age, 31 to 40, and, and so on, up to the age, up to the age of 80. And it, it seems to me that even if you look now at state level, this is a growing problem. The fact that the UP election was projected by the media quite reasonably as, as in many ways a fight between these two young dynasts of, uh, you know, uh, Akhilesh, uh, the son of Malayam Singh Yadav, and on the other hand, Rahul Gandhi, these two, you know, what in, India's, in, what in Indian terms is called y young politicians, and again, if you look at the, 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 the man who almost became uh, Punjab's new chief minister, uh, 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 Sukhbir Singh Badal, the, the, the son of the man who actually became the, the new chief minister, he is in a few weeks' time going to be 50 years old. His father, who's back in the post again, is 85 years old. 
So there you have the young politicians being 50 years old, which is twice the age of the average Indian. So there is some kind of disjuncture. And I mean, it's not every party that is undemocratic internally. Uh, the BJP does better, the, the CPIM does better, but pretty much all the other parties uh, depend more than they ever have before on the sons and daughters of eminent politicians being pushed into positions of power. That, I think, is the, the, the threat to Indian democracy. It's not how democracy functions at the ballot box. Thank you, Patrick. One of the uh, features of this most recent election uh, was that it showed the growing power of regional parties. Uh, much media attention is focused on uh, the, the very bad and disappointing results of the Congress, uh, uh, which is quite striking uh, in, in view of how much energy and investment that uh, the most important young Congress leader, Rahul Gandhi, had put in campaigning. And these elections are being read probably rightly. Uh, in that sense, it's a defeat for Rahul Gandhi. But less, at, less attention, I think, has been paid to the fact that the other, so to say, national party, the Bharatiya Janta Party, also did extremely poorly. And uh, this is important because it is in this state of Uttar Pradesh that back in the 80s, 1980s and 1990s, uh, the Bharatiya Janta Party really emerged uh, as a national party. I mean, the UP was where it launched its successful campaign uh, for national attention, which culminated, culminated in it. Uh, becoming the party of power in New Delhi in 1998 up till 2004. So this is growing regionalization uh, all across, whether it's in states like UP and Bihar, in, uh, in the east, uh, whether it's uh, in uh, uh, Bengal by Mamta Banerjee and her regional Trinamool party dethroned the communists after 30 years in the south, uh, uh, in the west. And I wanted to ask Maitrish, because of your own work on, um, uh, on economic development and also in the states, in terms of the evolution of the Indian economy um, as it's you know, uh, unfolding, how does the regionalization of politics, uh, is it healthy because it leads to more decision making being decentralized, does it make it more difficult because you can't have a pan-Indian policy, but how do you see regionalization of politics affecting economic policy in India? Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks for uh, well um, organizing this panel and um, um, so going back to your specific question you know um, I would say that in the last two decades the most notable thing about India that you know certainly within India as well as abroad that people have been talking about is really India's economic performance and um, so, you know, the, the whole sort of, you know, the march of democracy, that has been steady and strong. And while there have been indeed these developments as the uh, uh, sort of, you know, strengthening of the regional parties and so on. So I want to draw a couple of sort of really general sort of, you know, um, uh, sketches of observations rather than really something that is very uh, sort of uh, well uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, researched. But I thought, uh, given the sort of you know the original um, uh, discussion uh, we were having when sort of you know coming up with this panel topic, I was really I was somehow uh, got fixated on the word ferocious uh, on the fault lines, and I started thinking of the various fault lines that there could be and what are the particularly just one minute. Uh, uh, Western educated Indians such as myself have an incurable love of alliteration. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's, that's the reason for the ferocious. So, Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so, yeah, so perhaps it's the ferocious love for alliteration that I, I, I did not factor in. 
So uh, I, what are the things that I, I actually was looking at, given the broad frame of it, and I do want to uh, sort of you know, come back to the specific question. Yeah. But in terms of the economic trends, though, while India has been this big success story, the whole you know, rise of India as a potential economic superpower, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, one of the interesting things that if you look at the data uh, you know, of the Indian growth <coughs> performance in the last uh, two decades is that the growth rates indeed have been very high, okay, so something like 9% in the last decade as opposed to, you know, uh, decades of very slow growth, uh, what used to be called the Hindu rate of growth in a sarcastic way, so if the sort of, you know, slow and steady and so on. But interestingly, poverty has not declined very much. Okay, and one of the key things that if you, in the some of the euphoria of the sort of, you could say the sort of, you know, uh, business press as well as, you know, is while the growth in the sort of, you know, formal sector, especially services, you know, a lot of it is driven by IT, has indeed been impressive and there's no need to sort of, you know, uh, uh, sort of be apologetic about some of the positive effects it has done and while also raising returns to education. So whether you go from the call center to the, high, you know, the software developers, clearly there's been some of those aspirational effects that I think has changed some of the narratives of discourse. If you look at even coming back to the UP election, I'm going to come, come, come to some of the... So I think the development discourse, the whole idea about economic betterment, about somehow leaving the past behind of the caste and community, other kind of lines. So I think a narrative that has you know, certainly emerged. But the reality of the economic scorecard is while the service sector growth and overall sort of the stock market boom, these are all real, uh, poverty alleviation has been kind of, you know, the achievements have been modest. They are not insignificant, but they are very modest, okay? Um, I will not bore you with statistics, but, you know, one particular striking number that came to sort of my attention is that using the kind of World Bank standardized uh, dollar and eight cents a day, uh, adjusting for various things, uh, cutting, cutting line, uh, the poverty in 1983 was 44%, 44% of the people were under the poverty line. Now, in, in 2004, it was uh, 27%, so that is indeed something to be uh, sort of, you know, um, sort of positive about. But if you look at, even if you compute, say, twice this number, which is not a huge difference in the standard of living, so if you instead of take, say, $2.16, uh, right now 80% of India, uh, Indians would be below this line, and that hasn't fallen that much from 84, where it was 84%. Okay, so therefore there has been a decline indeed for the very poor if you take this very sort of, you know, low line and so on. But coming back to sort of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, now setting this background, so there clearly therefore there are two Indias, in fact I was going to argue uh, three Indias really, going back to again the sort of the word ferocious that uh, drove my sort of, you know, uh, or whatever focused my mind. Uh, the whole tribal area and the Maoist problem, for example, I'm going to argue that's the third India. So there is a service sector India that is really the India shining. And if I use some of the things that, you know, I would say critiques of uh, this economic reforms and so on, if you call them the India drowning kind of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, uh, characterization, I would certainly say that the, you know, the tribal population and the kind of uh, violation of their sort of, you know, um, sort of, you know, taking away of property and, you know, the natural resources, forestry and so on, dispossession has been quite extreme. But even in the middle uh, groups, which are, you could argue that there has not really grown 
very much. Real wages in agriculture have not really gone very, very much, and poverty has not declined significantly. The aspirational effects are very much there. And now coming more to the sort of UP, I mean, one of the things before UP, I would say that Nitish Kumar of Bihar has really set a paradigm, uh, which I think that, again, is too early to tell, but perhaps the UP model is also a harbinger of that Nitish Kumar's sort of paradigm is really governance and having actually done some work there and talking to various people, uh, it actually seems that you know the people who are uh, the politicians, the bureaucrats, and even the people have bought into that narrative. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that it doesn't fray on the edges and there are always counterexamples and so on. But on the other hand, even the BJP, which is an ally of Nitish Kumar, uh, actually has had to turn tone down its sort of you know uh, some of its uh, divisive sectarian rhetoric in the campaigning and so on. So there clearly has been uh, Muslim voters who have voted for this. NDA alliance, which you know, which has uh, BJP as the junior partner there. So coming to the Uttar Pradesh, I mean, clearly uh, there is an aspiration effect. There is an aspiration effect. People want good governance. People not just want money to be given from sort of the above. It's more like really economic betterment. And <coughs> that narrative has, if you even watch Bollywood films, uh, the, that narrative, I think, sort of permeates a lot of the aspiration effects of the, uh, of the even, you would say, people who have not directly benefited from the liberalization yet, but they have feel they can make it. Now, the regional parties, I think, coming now to sort of, you know, really uh, sort of, you know, that side of the question, what has happened is with this, all this economic growth, India's main political parties have been fairly centralized, hierarchical, and as Patrick said, they have run by non-meritocratic considerations, except for the CPM uh, or the communists or the BJP, which you could say that they're mainly being ideological parties. They have, in that sense, been a more equal opportunity, but that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that they have any uh, particularly good record to show for overall, uh, over, overall governance. But so in terms of some of the, so therefore the rise of the regional parties is really the rupture of the centralized hierarchical vertical model of governance and development. And I think it's really uh, something that even in the CPIM, which uh, got defeated in West Bengal uh, very recently after the ruling there for 30 years, is really trying to sort of you know, put down a centralized model of development and really not being sensitive enough to local considerations, not being participatory or democratic enough. So coming back to Sudhafra, I would say that in terms of economic policy, I think the rise of the regional parties in a certain way are an expression of democratic and more participatory sort of, you know, and that's the positive side of it. But on the negative side of it, though, there is a sense in which you're missing out on the common goals. So even, for example, the Singur uh, factory, uh, which turned out to be a flashpoint in the sort of, you know, conflict in West Bengal between the left front and the opposition party, if you really look at what happened there, a lot of these Indian states are now in a kind of rat's race to offer uh, subsidies to various business houses, and that's where being regional parties, in the language of us economists, you're not necessarily internalizing the externalities that you're imposing on others, okay? And as a result, that could be a potential <coughs> sort of problem here. And if you look at some of the rhetoric of this, uh, including Nitish Kumar, I mean, most of the discussion is uh, sort of while a lot of the discussion is about internal improvement, but a lot of it is that Bihar needs a special tax status. We need more sort of, you know, basically more resources from the center. Anyway. Uh, thank you, Batish. One of the consequences of uh, the regionalization of politics could be, I think on balance, as uh, my thesis said, is probably healthy because you have a far more direct connection between the party ruling your state and your own aspirations. Uh, but on the negative side, 
uh, India is also part of a complex neighborhood, past part of a complex uh, changing world. And what happens uh, when the polity is dominated by a multiplicity of smaller parties, each attending to its small patch of turf? How do you get the bigger picture? And so did, as someone who's uh, had a long interest in, uh, of course, in foreign policy and international affairs, and more recently has been, is the uh, prime mover of a, a fascinating report on India's strategic and foreign policy called Non-Alignment 2.0. How do you see uh, the growth of regional parties or generally the transformations in, in democracy recently um, playing out into how India views, views itself vis-a-vis -vis the neighborhood and vis-a-vis -vis the larger world? <coughs> Thanks, Ram. Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, I, I, and I'll come to that in a minute, yeah. the question of the regionalization of India and its effects on policy, particularly international policy, if you like. But I just wanted to pick up on some of the very interesting points that were made earlier about um, what uh, the most recent elections, but, you know, continuously the elections. that India is always having elections. Every year there are some elections. And what, what is this sort of telling us about the nature of our democracy, of Indian democracy, and just a couple of things I wanted to say about that. I mean, I think um, quite rightly, you know, we focused on some of the, the positive aspects about Indian democracy, and Mukulika mentioned them, uh, which are things like the increasing participation of, of electors uh, across the board in India, particularly uh, voters from the lower parts of the social structure, the, the social order, who are participating in, in, in rising numbers, and things like the, the, an, an, an actor like the Election Commission, which is, guarantees the, the, the openness of elections and the general fairness of the way they're conducted. But I think what, what has happened is, is a kind of over-attention, both within India but also amongst <coughs> scholars and commentators in some ways, on the the, the winning of power and the processes of winning of power in India um, to a kind of relative neglect of the actual exercise of power. So, you know, the counterpart of the, the, the good performance of the election commission are the disastrous uh, legislative assemblies in the states, the disastrous parliament uh, in India. So, you know, you have a good process, uh, or rather a legitimate process, to get politicians elected into these offices. But then what they do once they're in these offices is, is you know, basically mayhem uh, at best. I mean, you know, in their own interests. Um, so, so, so I think, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's very important that there's a kind of, I think, a switch in our focus to thinking more harder, really, about, if you like, the outputs of the of the whole process, you know what 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 kind of because at the end of the day, um, you know you can have a legitimate a system that is legitimate in getting people into power, but if they constantly abuse the exercise of power, that actually starts to drain the legitimacy of the system overall. And indeed, you are you know at the same time as you're seeing. You know, certainly climbing, although I think probably rates of participation, although I think we may be reaching something of a plateau uh, in, in participation rates. We're also seeing lots of Indians who are not going into the electoral process, who are taking, in, you know, taking to other methods because they are so, so frustrated and, and obstructed in pursuing their end. So whether it's, it's armed um, uh, uh, struggle or whether it's the movements that we've seen that have gone on to the streets in, in Indian cities in the past year, not necessarily in, in a very um, uh, clearly sort of uh, a 
achieving way as yet, but still it's a sign, I think, of also some, some trouble in the, in, in the democratic process. So I think that, that, that's something that, that one needs to, um, I think we need to think harder about. Um, the, the, I mean, yeah, I, I think absolutely, you know, one of the interesting things for me, you know, there's been a lot of commentary in, in the last few days on, on, on these recent elections and which party's up, which party's down, what it means for, the next, for 2014 and, you know, the next election and is the BJP, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and uh, there, there will continue to be a lot of that. But I think, I think that the longer, the, rather the bigger question that we face is the one you raised, which is, you know, what, what is the effect of this, um, um, headlong process of regionalization in Indian politics, the fact that for, for the foreseeable future, national governments are going to be coalition governments made up increasingly of regional parties. I mean, the fact is that the two national parties, the BJP and the Congress, now get less than half of the vote share in national elections. So, you know, in what sense are they national parties? Yes, of course. They're still larger than any other regional party, but put together, it's less than half of the vote share. So more than half of Indians are voting essentially for regional parties. So there is a kind of um, regionalization of, 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 the, of, of, of the political imagination, of the national imagination, if you like. And, and um, uh, you know, by definition, parties who, are, who come from these regional parties, uh, what makes them so electable is their focus on local interests, on, on local uh, uh, questions. I mean, that, that's their strength. So, as you say, yes, there's a good aspect to that because it, it does bring a different kind of uh, set of voices and arguments and so on to Delhi, which is very important. Um, but what you're also seeing is, 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 is a very big change in the, in the personnel of, of whom, who was in government, both in the states, in the 28 states, and in, in the national government. There's a change in the kind of political sociology of, of, in, of the Indian political elite. Um, and so, so then, you know, one wants to ask, well, what does that mean for, uh, for questions of policy which really do require thinking over long horizons, thinking uh, 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 coherently at a national level? How is that going to happen? And that, I think, again, is a very big challenge. And, you know, what I would say about international policy, both in the region but more generally, is one of the things that, that is striking to me, and one of the things we, we tried to bring out in this report, which Ram referred to, is that actually the distinction now in India between what is considered domestic policy and international or foreign policy is blurring by the day. It's becoming less and less analytically defensible. In fact, it's no longer analyti analytically defensible. It's just a nominal distinction, South Bloc and North Bloc. Uh, you know, you have, you have the, the Home Ministry or, or the various ministries that are dealing with dom supposedly domestic affairs and you have the Ministry of External Affairs. Actually, all the critical issues cut across those jurisdictions, um, whether it's agricultural policy, whether it's the choice of energy policy and its effects on, on climate change and the environment, whether it's, it's issues of public health, I mean, all of these issues, the, the idea that somehow they are domestic issues uh, and that foreign policy is a luxury for India uh, just no longer makes any, any sense uh, in analytic or, or, or causal terms. So, so you know, you, there are then a whole series of, of, of steps own questions from there, um, and, and how are we going to think about national governments who in 5, 10, 15 years' time are going to be made of people who have very, very different agendas, very different backgrounds, very different education 
from the kind of you know suave urbane people who strut around Delhi now um, uh, um, you know uh, 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 and, and and what kind of international imagination or some of the there are a lot of non suave non urbane people who also strut around <laughs> Delhi now I, I should make clear um, uh, but but you know what 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 is the how is that going to shape so so I mean I, I think it's a, it's 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 a question for us I, there's no there's no clear clear answer but I think it's really it's going to be a very important process of self education for these new political elites to begin to understand and realize that they have to think at this national level and at the moment of course they don't so you know the prime minister of India goes to Bangladesh makes a very important statement about about waters and and you know which really actually has the potential to to integrate uh, uh, to help integrate a very unintegrated region he comes back to delhi and the chief minister of west bengal the neighboring state to bangladesh says you know sorry we're not going to share water like this you know i want because it's not good for for my state so the whole policy falls apart so the kind of the the the, the, the expansion of veto points in any kind of national policy now are, is, is endless and it's proliferating. And, and that could have a very, uh, again, debilitating effect um, uh, on, on the conduct of national government, which in turn will have effects on its legitimacy. So I think that, that, that we're at a very critical period uh, now in terms of you know, consolidating the, the expansive moment of the Indian Democratic Project which I think has been very much there in the last two decades, but trying to consolidate that and turn it into actually legitimate, effective exercise of power. Thank you, Sunil. I'm now going to turn to some individual fault lines uh, which uh, were ferocious, are ferocious, or might become ferocious uh, in the future. And if you think of the fault line that was most ferocious in the past, clearly that's religious. I mean. India was born against a backdrop of bloody civil war between Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs, uh, which led to perhaps one or two million dead and more than 20 million displaced. And in a sense, that uh, um, background has affected Indian politics ever since. Uh, tension between Hindus and Muslims, provoked by extremist Hindus from within, provoked by Islamic jihadists from outside, uh, provoked by cynical politicians who don't really have a belief either way. and. Uh, it remains really a deep, deep fault line, the fault line between Hindus and minorities. Uh, last month ma marked the 10th anniversary of uh, the riots in Gujarat in 2002. As far as I know, I might be wrong, it's the first 10-year period since Jawaharlal Nehru's death in 1964 that there has not been a serious Hindu-Muslim riot, uh, which is a, a very modest thing to be you know, content with. The fact is that there have been minor riots, uh, there's evidence of discrimination of other kinds and so on. But I wanted to, what I'll do now is um, I'll raise a series of fault lines and ask only partly, uh, partly arbitrarily, ask each of the panelists to respond to them. And I wanted to ask you, Mukulika, because of your own work on, 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 on Muslims, you know, is this a kind of, um, uh, is, uh, is it a kind of uneasy social peace? Is it genuine syncretism? I mean, how do you see this? Uh, uh, fault line between Hindus and minorities playing out uh, in the next few years? Um, it is interesting that the, the, the BJP, as you said, uh, in this <coughs> last week's election <coughs> got absolutely nowhere in, in the larger state where, in fact, it, it absolutely relied on to get, get become a national party. 
Now, whether this means that religious tensions have gone away, clearly not. What has happened since Godra and the Gujarat riots of uh, 10 years ago that Ram mentions is that a very significant thing happened on this minorities issues in the last 10 years, which was the publication of the Sachar Committee report, which was a report on the state of the Muslim community in India. Post this report, 2006 onwards, it is now possible to raise this issue in public and have an open debate. This was the first time that there was uh, a cross-party consensus in a sense that you could not deny this because the, the committee produced a report that was well done that put forward the state of uh, complete uh, abject underdevelopment amongst the Muslim minority community in India, even when compared to other uh, depressed castes, classes, or uh, comparison. So in terms of literacy rates, below poverty line numbers, etc., on social health indicators, development indicators, education, access to anything, uh, Muslim community came out right at the bottom of the heap. Now, because this was out and this was debated, um, it is also, it is now possible. So today's news is the President of India opens the budget session in Parliament, and one of the first announcements she makes is a 4.5% quota for Muslims in the OBC category. Now, this is something that's been discussed for a long time. There hasn't, the opposition critiqued the government on a number of things, but this is not something that is going to be critiqued <coughs> because there is a certain understanding, I think, that uh, this is a real problem and this needs to be addressed. So in a sense, to go back to whether, you know, electoral politics, what we are celebrating through a discussion of electoral politics, it's almost as if, I think some people have called this a domestication of fault lines, such as religious minorities, through the electoral democratic process where it is now possible through electoral arithmetic and the way elections are played out, uh, that a lot of these issues become election issues and the writing's on the wall. You, it either flies or it doesn't fly. The BJP flew on this some years ago and became a national party, formed the national government. It's not cutting, any, uh, it's not cutting the mustard anymore. In the re that's one point. The second thing is that this notion of vote banks about, especially with minorities. So we talk about Adivasi vote banks or Muslim vote banks. Uh, this has been the kind of language that we've talked about minority votes in India for a long time. Now again, what recently has been showed, and certainly this week's results, is that this notion of the vote bank is disappearing. You cannot now predict the Muslim, this famous Muslim Yadav coalition of, of uh, Uttar Pradesh, for instance, the MY uh, coalition of the Samajwadi party, who won the elections this year. Uh, their votes are split. So you can no longer predict that Muslims as a vote, uh, as a bloc, will vote for any political party. Now I think what is symptomatic, uh, what this is symptomatic of, is that there is a larger, complete, I think, lack of understanding and, and ignorance about what minority communities generally, not just religious minority communities, but uh, say, say the Adivasi, the tribal community in India, or, or the Ati Dalits, or any, any sort of numerical, after all, minorities are a numerical demographic category. They are not preformed, they are they're formed through social uh, processes. And while in the Muslim case there has been this sort of uh, chauvinistic, um, Hindu chauvinistic agenda of, of seeing them really as matter out of place, as seeing you know, the anthropological categorization of dirt is what has been um, really applied to the Muslim minority in particular. But this idea that somehow by religion you can define people into predicting how they will behave 
and what their political opinions will be and who they're likely to support, that is something that actually a close look at the electoral results shows that uh, that is no longer the case. You cannot predict anymore. Thank you, Bukulika. Uh, Patrick, uh, I'm going to ask you a direct question about uh, a second fault line in India, which is partly national, partly ethnic, partly religious. And the question is, is Kashmir India's Tibet? <laughs> well, just while my mind is processing that question, I, mean, I think what, what follows on from what you, what you said is that essentially as people become richer, more prosperous, they have a better diet, uh, as their aspirations increase, then they stop voting along religious and caste lines. That's my, my hunch. But um, the answer is no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tell us why. Uh, since you, well, but, since uh, for Patrick is, among other things, the author of a wonderful book on Tibet. I mean, I, th I think it's very complex. Uh, the, bo both of these situations are very complex. That They developed in, in different ways, but crucially, the, the way in which the relevant governments respond to them uh, is completely different. Uh, essentially, the New Delhi response for the last 20 years has been sending troops and sort of ignoring the problem. Whereas, I mean, you know, to take just one example, you can go to Kashmir and you can interview people and you can have them expressing in the, mo in the most vivid and vociferous language exactly what they think, exactly what they demand. Whereas when I was in uh, Tibet trying to uh, do research, it was almost impossible. It, even to have a conversation, even to do an interview with somebody puts them in, in a state of extreme fear. And if you look at the form of protest in, in Kashmir, whether it's the sort of earlier, earlier phase of, of uh, Pakistan-supported uh, uh, mil militancy, or whether it's the, the present uh, more kind of grassroots, street-based opposition, and you compare that to what has happened uh, in Tibet over the last two years, uh, where, where, where people are, are, if you like, sort of, they're, they're almost like private suicide bombers. People are burning themselves to death in public as a statement of the, the level of their despair about the nature of Chinese communist rule in Tibet. So I think the reactions are quite different and the, and the way in which the two governments deal with those problems is, is quite different. But maybe just to, to link one thing to it, which kind of ties in with what Sunil was saying earlier. I, I think one of, one of the difficulties in the way India deals with uh, insurgency, whether it's in the Northeast, whether in, it's in the response to Maoism in Central India, whether it's in the way the, the state reacts in Kashmir, is that very often, uh, the Indian state only appears at all as a, 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 a soldier or, or a policeman or a paramilitary with a gun. Um, it is extraordinary in central India the way that there are villages where the state doesn't exist at all, where no representative of the state might, might be seen for maybe 20 or 30 years. And, you know, very often we talk in terms of the red tape and the bureaucracy in India, which can, you know, we can all be frustrated by it. But often what it actually amounts to is, is a lack of bureaucracy. It's almost as if the, the question of implementation, the question of making policy changes happen, uh, the, the mechanisms for delivery are simply uh, not there. And I mean, to, to give just a single example, look at the, one of the difficulties of Indian foreign policy. Generally, if you meet Indian diplomats, they are extremely, uh, extremely impressive. But uh, the, the MEA, in India's Foreign Service, is Lilliputian for the demands of a country like India. You then have the whole question of, well, you know, if, is India going to have to become a superpower, and if so, how? But again and again, the, 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 the face of the state is simply uh, not as highly developed as it needs to be uh, in the 21st century. Uh, let me uh, link uh, <coughs> Patrick's remarks to something I wanted to ask you, Sunil. 
uh, about institutions. Uh, we've spoken earlier on about the election commission uh, and its robust role, uh, but it stands out. That's the reason we go back to it again and again, because other institutions, uh, uh, our universities, our hospitals, our law courts, uh, have declined. Uh, there's been some recognition at, um, at the central level of the need to correct this. There have been commissions. There's been a knowledge commission. Now there's a skills commission. Uh, but one doesn't know what will come out of it. And it asserts that decline, atrophy, degradation of institutions uh, is a hidden fault line. It's not something that comes up. And I wondered what your thoughts are on it. And how does one uh, you know, start thinking seriously and constructi constructively about, uh, about the lack of institutional capacity that you talked about and now uh, Patrick has kind of reinforced? Yeah. yeah no, I, it's, uh, again, uh, really important. And I think what Patrick says is exactly right. I mean, and, you know, it draw, draws attention to the fact that the, the Indian state is a kind of incredibly malformed state. I mean, it's, it's muscular in many of the wrong parts, and it's completely wimpy in many of the parts it, it, it should be. So it's like, you know, kind of exquisite corpse made up of, you know, the, the, the Charles Atlas figure in the comic books, and then the kind of wimpy guy next to him who wants to be Charles Atlas. And you've got <laughs> to stuck these two things together, and that's the Indian state. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, when people talk about the need to kind of shrink the Indian state and so on, I mean, yes, in bits you need to, but in other bits it really needs to be to, to be to be bolstered. And one one thing that, that is absolutely right that you know the the the, 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 the very small amount of expertise often that the the state needs. You know, for example, today again coming back to the internationalization of issues, you know, many of the things that Indian ministries are dealing with concern international law. Now, the government of India has virtually no in-house international lawyers. So if there's anyone doing international law here and wants to work in India, you, you may have a good career ahead of you. Um, because, you know, there, there just isn't that kind of expertise. And, and in a whole number of different areas, you, 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 you can find that. Um, and, so, and, and, and yes, in parts of the country, the, the, the state doesn't exist at all. It's very, very thin on the ground. I mean, I think, I think you know, if you look at the history of institution building in India, um, I mean, the great moment of institution building was the 1950s, of course. That was a, a, a great period of, of, of when many of the institutions uh, that, in a sense, were living off the capital, the institutional capital of that initial founding decade and decade and a half. And it was those institutions, whether it was higher education, scientific institutions, public administration, a whole series that were created. Even the election commission. The, absolutely, the election commissions. And we've been living off the capital of that. And I think, you know, the, the, where there's now a period where the, the thing about India is that um, uh, bad, institu you know, bad institutions never die. Uh, they're simply replaced or, or, or complemented by another new institution that you create. So you have this incredible undergrowth of institutions in India, most of which are really weeds, um, but you just keep adding new ones to it. So there, it, 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 there isn't really a kind of very Darwinian process, I think, in Indian institution building. Um, they, they just sort of linger on. Um, but I think, I mean, the, the, a couple of things to say about that as well. I mean, you know, one of the things I think one has seen which is very worrying is, is the decline of a kind of professional ethics in the Indian professions, uh, where, you know, it, you did have a certain kind of self-invigilation of the professions, 
where, where certain kind of standards and competencies and so on were recognized. But you know, now when you get on that Jet Airways or Indigo flight, you don't quite know how much the pilot has paid to get their license. Uh, and and this, is, this is not a joke, it's true. I mean, there, there have been you know, cases of, 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 of people, uh, so, and this similarly you know, with, with, medic, with hospitals, with, where, where basically the, the, these professions are, are uh, you know, up for sale. And, and so the, the kind of the total de decay of the professional ethics, which I think is again a, a, another very, very worrying uh, uh, development. Just one final thing, which is a kind of puzzle about this, the, the, the state of institutional health and its economic impact. I mean, it's, it is, it's always puzzled me that, okay, so the 1950s and 60s were the era of great institutional building and of relatively efficient functioning of institutions. But it was also the era of our lowest economic growth. Now when our institutions are so bad, we're actually growing economically quite well. So maybe it doesn't matter so much. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, coming to you, Matish, you know, I uh, wanted to ask you about uh, inequality. Many years ago, the French uh, anthropologist Louis Dumont wrote a book about the caste system called Homo Hierarchicus. Uh, and you know, many Indians were outraged by the title because the argument was that India, Indians are Homo Hierarchicus. And, Certainly, um, in a scriptural sense, in a philosophical sense, they have defined, elaborated, practiced, uh, enforced inequality in a far more sophisticated and, dare one say, diabolical way than any other culture. So we are homo hierarchicus. And if you look at economic liberalization, in a sense, it's increased income inequalities. It certainly has made a dent in poverty, as you, as, as, as you, as you suggested. But, uh, you know, sometimes it is said by optimistic people that there's a Kuznets curve, and if you look at the West, uh, the middle class will grow, inequalities uh, arise in the first phase of development, and they kind of narrow down, but you already see signs of uh, the resentment that inequality causes. You mentioned Maoism, very rightly. Another sign is actually uh, less noticed, is uh, less noticed for this season, is farmer suicide. Uh, indebtedness and the failure of the monsoons is endemic in Indian history, but farmers never kill themselves. Why do they do so now? I think there is a real resentment against, this real sense of failure, a real resentment against the celebration of success by the media. How much inequality can a democracy sustain? You talked about the Maoist movement. Will we see you know, violence as is uh, against um, the rich and the kind of uh, luxury uh, classes as is there in South Africa or Latin America? How much inequality can a democracy sustain? Mm, that's a great question, and the answer is uh, up to a point, really, not 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 uh, not extreme levels. So, just uh, sort of some thoughts on uh, on this topic. So, I mean, clearly, you have to. Un I mean, there are several dimensions of inequality. I mean, you know, and there's an entire branch of economics which is really about computing various sort of you know measures of inequality. Because, roughly speaking, it's a bit like are the poor getting poorer? That could lead to inequality. But it's like the poor are constant, but the rich getting richer. That could lead to inequality, so there's good inequality, bad inequality, and also there is, of course, some uh, sort of, I think, generally accepted, at least within economics, that full equality might not be uh, sort of an achievable uh, sort of, you know, just from the nature of economic processes and how, how market system work. But having said that, I, I, I agree with you that in, 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 in sort of in terms of, I think, the biggest scandal about India's sort of, you know, uh, <coughs> 
both the democratic experiment as well as the economic success story. There's something that sort of we almost like is the crazy aunt we keep in the attic or it's like the stuff you leave behind the curtains is really how we treat our poor. I mean, you know, and they, they obviously, you know, there, there's several dimensions of it. And one of the things that I was reflecting, and actually I um, also, uh, this is discussed in your very nice article in 2007 EPW about the position of scheduled tribes. So actually the only group in India that does worse than the Muslims is actually the scheduled tribes. You know, worse than the Muslims and the Dalits. And the Dalits, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. if you actually look at the numbers, so there is this entire, you could call them native Indians in the sense of these were the Adibasis or the original inhabitants who really live in largely forest uh, and uh, uh, covered areas which also happen to be mining rich. So that's why some of the recent kind of liberalization induced uh, sort of, you know, uh, intrusion of capital into these areas have led to various conflicts and that is clearly one big uh, sort of you know thing associated with the Maoist movement but in general though there are various other types of inequalities and one of the I think again I mean this makes the sort of you know as I said so the broad point is that the Indian state uh, has not done very well at all to put it very mildly in terms of dealing with abject poverty and whether it's you cut it by economics or we cut it by social categories and so on this is where I, I'll just give you you know one small example if you look at the Indian government's budgetary allocation given the economic liberalization there's a fair bit of you know formal sector tax revenue that both the central government and the state governments they get in various ways if you actually look at the expenditure patterns that I think will tell you I really don't need to say much more if I you know uh, so basically most of it is spent on essentially uh, formal sector salaries and formal sector kind of you could argue non-essential uh, expenditure as opposed to development projects or as opposed to redistribution whether in you know cash or whether in the form of public services to the poor so this is a situation where we have a hinterland of abject poverty and which you know in some cases where it is accentuated by some of the predatory behavior under you know sort of some of the you know uh, in the mining areas and in the tribal areas but in other cases often it's not so much an, an accentuation of the problem it's more like benign and sometimes not so benign neglect of a whole sort of you know agriculture informal sector where all during all this period there has not been any growth but coming back to it, and I don't want to paint an uniformly sort of gloomy and sort of, you know, uh, picture here. Uh, it, it was uh, implicit in your question. One of the striking things, I don't think it's been quantified enough to uh, give statistics, but some of the Dalits and scheduled castes during the liberalization period, those who could take advantage of the service sector boom, have actually, there have been several stories in, 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 in the media, the New York Times published several and so on. So that's the aspirational story where they basically said that the so-called Nehruvian planning bureaucratic infrastructure, which had its noble elements and something that was you know, commented about, but over time it increasingly became ossified and captured by various interests that were basically not you know, true to the original objectives. Essentially what this liberalization for all its sort of, you know, you know kind of, you know, the, some of the attendant problems really decentralized and to some degree uh, sort of, you know, reduced the power of the centralized state. And through that, some 
flowers have bloomed. I mean, some amount of enterprise, some amount of aspirational effects have happened. It has not trickled down sufficiently in some groups of people. They have actually led to immeasurization. So there's nothing to sort of you know, go on with. The, but clearly, there is a certain sense, and this is, goes back to the point about how Muslims are voting and the whole, you know, the fact that people are no longer looking at the state as Sarkar Mabap, which is like the government as the you know, parental state, which is basically supposed to you know, uh, deliver things to you, which it has not really been you know, successful. And you know, so there is a sense of individualism, there's a sense of individual aspiration. So in these senses, at least in, within the sort of, you know, I would say the formal or modern sector, the India shining sector, certain dimension, dimensions of inequality have actually gone down. Thank you, Matthew. You've had uh, a series of fascinating reflections, responses, uh, perspectives from our speakers. It's time now to open it out to the audience. And uh, I will take two or three questions uh, before. Uh, so, yes, you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wait for the mic. Uh, and then you, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a student at, uh, at the LSE. Uh, I just want to ask uh, Ms. Banerjee, uh, do you agree with Professor John Kenneth Galbraith when he said that India is a functioning anarchy? When you have one third of India is under the influence of Naxalism, Northeast India, you have this ethnic divide, and in Kashmir, the presence of Indian army is the only symbol of India's sovereignty. Now that is the seriousness the whole country is going through. So we are, are a functioning anarchy. Just for a sec, there are some very important points. No, no, I, we like number, no, no, number two, yeah, yeah. Number two do, yeah. don't you think that we are a geographic entity? We have not yet become a nation state. And Professor Ramchandra Guha could address why India is not having a revolution, a bloody revolution with so much of poverty and discrimination. Is it because our poverty yeah. does not uh, make people to form into class because of caste and religion and ethnic divide? Thank you. Thank you. In the middle there, uh, yeah, the gentleman there with the black shirt. Yeah. I'll come. Yeah. Next. Hi. Oh, um, going back to the start of the lecture, um, isn't it true that the large sums of money that are required to run for election, right? Like uh, organizational costs, things like that, um, like really prevent any but the richest people, who are often sons and daughters of politicians, from running for po for power in the status quo. To begin with, yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, here, uh, this, uh, this lady in the red. Uh, um, thank you for your interesting panel discussion. Um, if I'm not wrong, the present composition of uh, both the houses of the parliament and the state legislative bodies is based on a census which was conducted in 1980. Um, there was a constitutional amendment, I believe, the 44th Amendment, and the figures are frozen to take effect, I think, from the 2020 census. So we are actually living in a position where, um, where, for instance, let's say Jammu and Kashmir, where the population, where uh, Jammu at, in 1980 probably had greater population and therefore uh, more MLAs and more MPs had representation in the Houses of Parliament and State Legislative Assemblies. However, because of floating population and several other factors, the demographic compositions in different states have changed. And that has not uh, been replicated in the structure of both yeah. Houses of Parliament and the State Legislatures. Do you see that as a fault line? So thank you. I mean, these, these various questions all 
really point to the gap between the form and content of democracy, whether philosophically, institutionally, uh, in terms of rights. So, quick reactions? Uh, well, let me just react to that last point because I think it raises a very, very interesting and important question, which is, you know, how do you create and maintain legitimate forms of political representation in very, very large states like India, America, the EU, uh, you know, th these are problems that e e e each of these large states are, are grappling with. And what you touch upon is a, is, is a, a, a crucial point, which is that, you know, with, with population changes, I mean, the fact is that now in India, at the national parliament, a, a member of parliament represents a, a constituencies which vary in size from one to three million, sometimes even just below one million to three million. So that straight away means actually the value of a vote is not the same. It depends where you are and where you're voting. Your vote can be worth one-third of what the, vote, the value of a vote of someone who's voting in a constituency that's one million, if your constituency is three million. Right. So, so there's this great variation. So in a sense, when we talk about every vote is, is equal in India, it's not so. It depends where you're voting from. And there's this great discrepancy. And this is something that no, we haven't really addressed. Uh, it, it's a very sensitive issue. Um, so there's that question about the size of constituencies. And again, you know, compare it with the size, the relationship that an MP, in, say, in this country has with an electorate, a constituency of, what, 50,000, 60,000? Uh, I'm not sure, but certainly much, much, much smaller. Um, so that's one very, very important issue about the, 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 the scale of, of representation and the discrepancy in it. The other, of course, is uh, I think what you're touching on, which is that the, the, the disproportion of representation between different parts of the country, uh, between different states, but also now very, very importantly between the north and the south. What you've seen is that population growth has expanded much, rapid, much more rapidly in the north. Its growth rates have tailed off in the south. The, but the, the, the distribution of representation has not changed. So it basically means the North is underrepresented in national parliaments. Now, this is again a very, very tricky question because in trying to rebalance that, do you want to, in a sense, penalize those states which have actually brought down their growth rates, i.e. the southern states, give them less representation in national government, and actually, in a sense, reward the more, uh, the more highly populating states, as it were, of the North by expanding their representation. Now, so there, there are complicated questions of political equity, uh, policy, uh, in a whole series of different issues. And no one, uh, it's two cents. So, so the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of football which gets kicked, being kicked forward. So no one has really addressed it. What did happen recently? was uh, in, in the, just before the last election, national election, uh, general election, was an interesting and important rebalancing of uh, greater representation to urban India. So that had, you know, the cities had been underrepresented uh, because they had expanded you know, greatly in, in population size, but the numbers of seats haven't kept it. That actually was done, I think, quite subtly and, and, and cleverly, and so there is a better representation of the cities. But this north-south question and the question of the size of constituencies remain, to, you know, very complicated issues to address. Yeah, uh, respond to two of those questions. The first thing to, you know, about Galbraith's uh, uh, skepticism, uh, 
That's precisely, I think, that the last 60-year record is, is really a repost to that kind of observation. Where he, he wasn't at all alone but, but in that. But it wasn't a skepticism. It was a congratulation to India, <laughs> I think, to be <laughs> a Order that a Yes, yeah. it's, a, it's in the same spirit as Ram's uh, uh, comment about India being the most interesting but also the most infuriating place on earth, which, which is in, in that spirit. But it is, um, it is a, uh, I, I think, you know, of all the three fault lines that you mentioned, um, again, I would come back to, um, I think I, I have to defend an optimism corner here because it's getting very bleak and gloom and gloom. <laughs> and there has to be room. We have to uh, find what we can to, uh, to keep the optimism. The, the, the ways in which the democratic revolution has been talked about, if you talk to ordinary people, which is what I do a lot of, is talking to ordinary voters, they talk about their votes as weapons. Uh, so the choice of armed struggle is definitely a choice taken up by some. But actually, the number of districts in India where elections cannot be held are 15 over 600 districts in India. So let's, not, let's keep perspective. There is, yes, there is an armed struggle in large parts of central India. And you absolutely can see uh, what is going on and why there is uh, cause for grievance. But there is a danger of overstatement. You talk about the Northeastern and um, ethnic divides and so on. Again, Manipur is a very good example. And, and last week's uh, uh, triumph of the Congress chief minister is not because he's a thoroughly corrupt, thoroughly um, um, malfunctioning, bad governance, no delivery mechanisms, etc. But really, it was done on, on the basis his victory is basically because the electorate thought he was their best bet in uh, dealing with this particular issue. So elections emerge, and electoral politics, in this case, democratic politics, emerges as, as a preferred avenue. And this, I'm saying this really from, uh, from the perspective of the electorate. I should add here, if I may, Ram, that um, most people in India, most enthusiastic voters in India, which would preclude the apathetic middle classes who live in cities, right, they vote the least. But if you're, if you're poor and low caste and uh, live in a small town or a village, you're likely to be a very enthusiastic voter in India. And this is counter to a lot of other global trends uh, in other democracies. If you ask these people why they vote, it is not because they think politicians are good and they're going to do something for them. They, they vote for hope. It's like Akhilesh Yadav's, uh, what was it called? Umid ka cycle. Right? That was his slogan this last week, for those of you who understand. In the Umid is hope. It's about, and cycle was their uh, election party symbol. So he was talking about how really elections is a time of hope. But really the electorate are saying, we understand that politicians are corrupt and venal and dishonest, but we can throw them out in five years' time if they don't deliver. And I think it, is, it isn't just about being able to eat and drink and, and gain some prosperity and therefore not vote according to your vote banks. It, there is a certain element of that, of course. Uh, but it is about uh, rewarding post-clientelistic uh, delivery me mechanisms, which is ha happening much more. Uh, every government that has done even the slightest bit, and the left front's 34-year rule in, in West Bengal is impossible to explain otherwise, any government that has done even this much for poverty alleviation gets rewarded. And that has been a huge incentive to actually do something. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether the UPA government is able to get a third term on the basis of that if they get their act together. <coughs> Very briefly, on, on elections and money, which I think is a really important question for, uh, for, to have raised, most people cannot you know, be bemoan the fact that people don't enter electoral politics. And, and the going rate at the moment is one crow to uh, fight an election. 
And this might explain what Patrick's been saying about, about the nepotism and the uh, hereditary family farms of politics. But again, fighting the optimistic corner, if I may just make an observation about um, uh, this week's uh, results with both Akhilesh Yadav and Rahul Gandhi. For those of you who are following the, the results, and Akhilesh Yadav is, as, as Ram said in his introductory remarks, a 40, 30 something, 38 uh, year old man. Uh, son of, uh, you know, so on the face of it, this is a classic case of what Patrick is describing, right? Mulayam Singh Yadav, head of the Samajwadi party, uh, his son becomes the chief minister. He's been anointed chief minister. If you look at Akhilesh Yadav's biography, though, he is exactly, he's a bad son. He fought with his father. He wanted to marry a Brahmin woman. His father threw him out of the house. He said he stuck to his guns. He married her. Father excommunicated him. He came back. And now in his politics, right in the last five days that they've been dithering about whether to appoint him as chief minister, he has basically gone against everything that Malayam Singh Yadav has, has uh, stood for. He hasn't given his cronies tickets. He hasn't, um, uh, he's talked about a third wave and Malayam Singh is. So all I'm saying is that if you look at him, Akhilesh Yadav, and interestingly, also Rahul Gandhi, who of course is, is the, you know, you just have to say Rahul Gandhi, if you want to talk about dynastic politics, you just say Rahul Gandhi and everybody seems to understand what we're talking about. But again, and I, you know, I have sympathy with that take, but again, if you look at Rahul Gandhi's particular interest in politics, he, he cannot commit to being a prime ministerial candidate or indeed chief minister of UP, which is why he, there was no way the Congress was going to win. But his, the, what really moves Rahul Gandhi's interest in politics, we are told, is a genuine um, interest in, in the th what he calls a third tier of democracy, local level democracy, or bringing in people. You know, the observation that he made is that, look, there are about 100 people in India who choose the 5,000 odd elected representatives that we have over all the different tiers of democracy to rule a billion people. I mean, this must be wrong. And therefore, the tickets given to 150 OBCs unprecedented for a Congress government. And, and the Congress hasn't been I mean, lost in Punjab precisely for that reason. It picks a uh, uh, paternalistic old elite or in all the time, not letting new blood in. But on the face of it, so you know, even our dynastic, our discussion of dynastic politics has to be nuanced, looking at the particular actors where they may be sons, but their agendas in politics might be either anti their fathers or anti-entrenched party interests. That's a great point. Just one remark before I ask for more questions. And that's to do with um, a wonderful organization called the Association for Democratic Reforms. Uh, and I urge those of you who have not, uh, don't know of it to go to the website, which sets out a charter of practical, practicable electoral reforms. But we'll go to more questions. Yes, sir, at the back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wait for the mic. Yeah. Don't you think the time has come for a radical re-examination of this idea of India? And as um, Arundhati Roy uh, suggested recently, that it's time that this, this state which is absent in many parts of India, as Patrick says, only appears in a kind of an imperial form in states like Kashmir and Manipur and Nagaland and so on. And hasn't the time come for India to get out of there? Next yeah, um, my question has to do with the uniqueness of Indian democracy. And so the question is, to what extent do you see the Indian democratic model in itself as an offspring of the Western liberalization policy, which often marry liberalization with democratic change? Or is it a homegrown democracy that we can say it's demand from within or the normal population? 
Yeah, uh, at the back of it. First time. We'll, we'll have another round after that. Yeah. The Kashmir problem has been going on for the past 60 years now. India and Pakistan have fought four wars over Kashmir. Do the panelists think that the Kashmir problem is perpetual or it is soluble? Thank you very much. That's a great question. Anyway, let, let me start from here. On any of these questions, all of them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so whether we should essentially liquidate India, that, that was one of the questions. And if we use business terms, it's time to I'm sort glad of. the LSE considers big questions. Like <laughs> exactly. So, evening. Uh, you know, I, again, I'm not a political scientist. Uh, you know, I obviously, if you do economics, you have to, you know, uh, put a lot of weight on political forces and political economy and so on. My general sense, though, is, you know, I think what Mokulika said, a couple of, uh, I, I, I agree with some of the empirical sort of studies she's referring to and some, you know, and, and so on. I genuinely think that Indian democracy is very, it's hardwired into our uh, cultural sort of DNA to use sort of, you know, uh, uh, sort of fashionable terms. And therefore, I think it's very authentic. And indeed, if you, I, I'll give you a, sort of a state of West Bengal where I come from, and most of my empirical studies are about West Bengal. So even the left movement, which fundamentally is not a democratic in the sense of parliamentary democracy movement, right? It has been really about capturing state power. And of course, in that sense, Maoists have always been the true followers of the true sort of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, whereas uh, allegedly the CPIM and others have kind of, you know, made compromises. But even if you look at the discussions within that, they accept that the Soviet model or the China model, whatever, you know, the democracy is something that you have to sort of accept. It's sort of almost comes before everything else. You can have markets, you may not have markets, you can have liberalization, you may not have liberalization, but democracy is not kind of being questioned. Another thing that, you know, going back to, I would, you know, just really expressing my hope that India really doesn't uh, sort of, you know, dissolve itself. I really think that in this discussion, this role of civil society NGOs didn't come up because I think some of the really important legislative developments that have happened in re real, you know, recent years is not the Nehru Mahalanabes sort of, you know, standing on the top and sort of, you know, doing reforms, which some of them were obviously infrastructure building, were very important ones, but it's really grassroots. If you take the the Right to Information Act, which is Aruna Roy, and essentially it's an NGO that started it. So I genuinely think that both the formal uh, sort of you know uh, uh, machinery of democracy, but more informal uh, uh, you know aspects of it. You know, for example, Patrick mentioned the kind of conversations he had in Kashmir, makes me optimistic. It doesn't mean that one has to be complacent. It is true that our media or our focus is often away from the really difficult or dark areas, which do not have the representation that really they deserve. But on the whole, I think. Indian democracy is in very good shape, and uh, you know I feel optimistic about the future. Uh, there are so many questions I would like to answer and discuss. Um, I mean, I, I'm also uh, broadly in the optimism corner, and I, I don't think there's any advantage for, for example, Manipur succeeding. I, 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 if you look at places where the state dissolves, you look at Congo, you look at Afghanistan, they don't seem to me uh, models which really have anything to offer India. And I know that's quite an unpopular view. I, w I was in an East Coast university at the end of last year, and I was quite attacked quite bitterly for privileging the nation state by saying this. And, um, but, but, you know, to me that is actually quite an important thing to say, because the alternative for India, when you look at some other neighboring Asian countries, is, is so much worse. And 
I think one of the things that is quite startling when you're in India is how little uh, social uh, resentment there is. Uh, one of the questioners said, you know, why is there not a bloody revolution? And it, at one level you can look at the statistics and say, well, you'd think that people would react in that way. And yet again and again, social surveys show that there is quite a high uh, degree of contentment despite those high levels of inequality in India. It's also perhaps worth mentioning that some of the things that are commonly cited, for example, the statistics on farmer suicides, don't really stack up when you look at the data. If you, if you look at the survey that is often quoted of 200,000 farmer suicides, you look at the levels of reported suicides in some parts of Maharashtra, and then you look at the data for UP, where it appears, in theory at least, there are almost no suicides at all, you begin to think, well, maybe people are picking the numbers in order to put forward a particular point of view. Um, so, so just very quickly, because we're running out of time, I'll just allude to three uh, things. Uh, on Indian democracy, is, is there a specific version of homegrown, if you like, non-Western democracy in India, I think there definitely is. It, it becomes more and more complex and more and more interesting and more and more specific to India itself. Whether that can in the future be replicated in other large countries, who knows. Uh, is Kashmir soluble? I think it is, because I think that in a way the existing stalemate is almost certainly going to, at some point in the future, determine what the solution will be. I don't think anybody on either side thinks seriously that the actual line of control is likely to alter uh, significantly. And just one final uh, allusion is to what Sunil said of the, 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 the increasing lack or, or the growing lack of suave and urbane people in uh, government in New Delhi in the future. I think that is, that is probably true, but I don't think it's too much of a worry. I think in many ways that might actually bring India certain benefits on the world stage. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular of, a, of an anecdote which I heard around the time when Malayam Singh Yadav became defense minister. And he went on his first uh, visit to uh, an army outpost in Kashmir and the officers' wives had prepared him cucumber sandwiches with homemade mayonnaise. And he had a look at them and then said in rough Hindi, get me a glucose biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's lovely. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're next. next yeah. I just wanted to ask about how would the effect of comparative politics between the different parties, say let's talk about FDI in retail or even Kashmir or on the, on the foreign policy, because you see often the BJP would oppose what the Congress would try and do in the part and vice versa. That's a very good question. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 I'd just like to hear your take on whether you think uh, corruption is a ferocious fault line and how it impacts on all the areas that we've been discussing so far, because it does seem a bit like the elephant in the room. Right at the back. That's an allusion to Mayawati, right? No, in general, sorry, just maybe Anna also, I suppose. Is the Indian economic experience a clear example of the discreditation of the trickle-down effect? Or is the trickle-down effect the perfect opiate for a bunch of people intoxicated by hope? <laughs> okay, well, one last, and then we'll have uh, some final comments. Yeah, at, at the back, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take two more questions, then we'll have a last wrap-up, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, pointing to, I think, a more obvious elephant in the room, perhaps India's democracy's biggest ferocious fault line is not its, it's, not its uh, corruption issues, but its gender partiality. And to what extent, I mean, it's something that we haven't mentioned, but if you're looking at social demographics, um, economics, human development studies, I mean, even down to international relations studies, where are the women? And surely isn't that going to have some effect on India's future? Uh, hopefully, I'll, we'll have one more round of questions, but let, let, let me get the uh, panelists to respond. 
individually quickly? Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, well, okay, a lot of things to say. I mean, on the question of policy uh, differences between the political parties and, you know, continuity and so on, actually it's quite interesting. In a number of the, the sort of critical areas of policy for India, although um, when the party is in opposition, they will make a lot of rhetorical play of d disagreeing, actually there's a lot of continuity, particularly on foreign and, and economic policy. So actually, there have been changes of government uh, since the since the early 90s. Uh, uh, several different you know, India said coalition governments, Congress governments, third front government, BJP governments. There's been a basic continued uh, continued economic policy and also essentially a foreign policy. So there's quite a lot of. Um, uh, there's quite a lot of actually policy stability. In fact, this, it becomes actually policy inertia. It becomes so stable um, a lot of the time. So that's a different matter. Um, on the question of corruption, yes, it's there. It's not going to go away <coughs> soon. It's also an avenue of opportunity for many Indians. And, and I think it's actually a way in which, you know, for many Indians, it's their best form of social mobility. So, you know, corruption is, 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 is a complicated uh, thing. Uh, I just quickly wanted to say a couple of things about democracy. And so, I mean, I, I don't think democracy is hardwired into any society. Democracy is a fragile experiment that can go wildly wrong. Most of human societies and most of human history have lived without democracy. So the fact that it exists in India is actually an extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. Uh, and, you know, it will only exist as long as Indians manage in some kind of ramshackle way to maintain the skill of doing it. But it's very easy to fall off that bicycle. So there's nothing hardwired, I think, about it. Um, it, it, it it's a totally, uh, you know, it's a totally fragile project. Um, and I think, in fact, the answer to Kashmir is actually whether or not India can start to create uh, a, a, a system, a political system in India that is open more to democratic representation. The moments when it has done, Kashmir has much receded as, as a problem, and actually there's very clear experience of that. So I would just say that. The other thing I would say is it's absolutely right that you know there's a lot of stuff happening at the level of civil society. There are a lot of extraordinary people doing all kinds of extraordinary work all over India, and that's an amazing inspiration and example. But at the end of the day, it has to be scalable. India is a huge society, uh, and it has to, in that sense, have a state which functions. Uh, so the idea that somehow one can bypass the state, uh, I, I totally agree with Patrick on that. That's an illusion. You know, the only thing, and the only thing worse than uh, than not having a than than having a state is not having a state, really. And and so in that sense, you know, the Indians have put their destiny in the hands of a state, and now we have to make that work. Very briefly, just two quick points on, on corruption. It's very interesting that uh, corruption is always an issue. Um, and whenever there is an alternative, uh, people go for it. Uh, so it is punished, at least, uh, uh, when people can. And most of the time, they can't, which is a problem. The question about hope and your slightly, uh, your tongue-in-cheek representation of, of popular hope being um, an opiate, I think, you know, if I had to pinpoint one fault line that I think is, is the most important one, it would be that it is what is India's strength or Indian democracy's strength at the moment is also its most tenuous fault line, which is precisely that it hangs on a politics of hope. Ele participation by people, the fact that they feel invested, that 50% of Indians still express satisfaction with the governments that they have is extraordinary. 
given their performance, as we've you know, been in great pains to show how completely uh, abysmal their record has been, more than 50% of Indians are actually happy with their government. And they continue to engage with the political system um, and uh, continue to participate with enthusiasm and hope because they think this is the best way to contain and to aspire and to uh, build a better um, world for themselves. If that shifts, and I think it, you know, the danger here is that if there is a flattening out of political choices, if there isn't a growth in political capacity of people, which is about awareness and connections and efficiency and so on, um, that hope is very fragile. So it, actually the system is turning on it. Oh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just take the, uh, the question on uh, gender partiality. I think it's very, very interesting. Um, I mean, th there are, again, reasons for hope. There's the fact that in, in this particular uh, election last week, there was very high female turnout to vote. Uh, there's the fact that there's been an amendment to the Constitution which puts a reserve, or, or will shortly put a reserved number of seats for women in, in all uh, elected bodies. And j just one thing that I, I, I if, you, if you like, on the more negative side, um, when I did the study of uh, hereditary politics, I noticed there was a possibly coincidental exact correlation between the three places where hereditary politics was most intense, uh, Delhi, uh, Punjab, and Haryana, with the rates of... Uh, the feticide of, of female children. So it was almost as if uh, the, the two things were quite closely uh, tied in together. But I, I didn't investigate any further than making the observation. Okay, thanks. Um, just a couple of quick comments, one on trickle-down economics. I agree that, in fact, the statistics I reported does show that uh, trickle-down has not quite uh, worked out uh, for large sections of the population. But having said that, I think that we should also think in terms of you know, benchmarks when we make statements like that. If you take the Chinese model um, uh, in, in, of development, clearly the level of dispossession and sort of expropriating farmers and some of the movements relating to land, that is again, it's not even sort of forget trickle down, it's sort of state-sponsored expropriation at a large scale, which doesn't even, because of the control media, doesn't get the kind of media publicity. Having said that, not to deny China's investment in basic education and health, that are, of course, there are some you know, uh, positives from that. So it's not clear which economic model. So it's not like there's a beautifully worked out model for inclusive growth that we could sort of, you know, so therefore I think India is really stumbling and uh, sort of, you know, uh, stumbling along and, and I believe on an upward trajectory. And also, just a kind of quick remark on the issue about the you know, values of democracy uh, being in, in our DNA. So just want to clarify, I think, uh, based on um, uh, Sunil's comment, what I meant was institutionally democracy is, of course, very fragile. You can't take that as given. But I think in our value system and people's expectations you know, form around certain things, that if you look at India's you know, experiment with formal democracy, it's remarkable that if you compare that with any peer country, the fact that except for a brief two-year period of the emergency, which was severely punished by the electorate when Indira Gandhi was voted out of power. So I want to make the distinction. Yes, democracy as an institution is a fragile project that is continuous work in progress. But in terms of core values of what India sort of, I think, freedom of you know, expression, uh, exercise of electoral rights, I think these are things that I don't think any political party in a long-term sense can really mess around with given sort of the expectations and the sense of entitlements that people have. I suppose also given how many times people have exercised already, so then you can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the LSE generally ends its uh, public programs at 8 p.m., uh, but this is a 
discussion on India, and Indians are ferociously unpunctual. <laughs> so I've got to uh, allow a uh, last round of uh, questions, first from the top there. Yeah. <laughs> I see all the non-Indians are leaving. <laughs> Hello, I'm a student from King's. Yeah. My question is regarding public finances. When you look at the present situation in the EU, there are a lot of states which are going bankrupt. And if you look at the Indian scenario, we're all happy about the economic growth and we're all excited about it, no doubt. But at what cost is this coming? As in, if you look at the state finances, in most states, the public debt is going up dramatically and we have no way to control it. Half of it is nearly towards government salaries or towards interest payments. So in light of that, how sustainable is India's growth? That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, uh, my question is to uh, Professor Matri. Um, to what extent do you think um, India's liberalization policy post-1990 um, failed to trigger this whole trickle-down effect, what you were mentioning, um, especially in terms of talking about regional income inequality? And to what extent do you think um, something like land acquisition policy would play a major role in, in addressing this issue of whole regional inequality in, in, in the future? Thank you. Come back to the question, the question of corruption, because there's a question I'd like to ask. To what extent do you think that the furor about corruption and unprofessionalism in, in Indian political and uh, elite society is really a code for deep-seated hostility and hatred of the rise of OBCs and particular Dalits to positions of wealth and power? It seemed, I mean, one example I would give, and I don't particularly hold much of a candle to Mayawati, but I was in <coughs> India in January, and the, the media frenzy and hostility to the question of her statues in UP seemed to me to reflect not really the question of Mayawati and her statues, but the absolute hostility that there should be Dalits who have statues of them in, in UP. Well, uh yeah, one well, yeah, last question. So do you think Indian democracy and the governance deficit that is, we're facing right now in policy paralysis, is that actually testing the doctrine of separation of powers, specifically <coughs> the Supreme Court and the media which is erecting itself as this fourth pillar? What are your thoughts on that? And you, sir, last, last question, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah go ahead. Why is it that in a democracy, and we've been a democracy for most of the last 60 years, that no one ever thinks that providing primary education or primary health is important, and it now is even off everyone's agenda? So I'll request the panelists to uh, also uh, fold in your concluding remarks, as if any, uh, along with the answer to the question. But since there was questions on public finance, etc. We have to start with you. Okay, so I, I, I thought we were in a pretty liberal, yeah. I didn't realize we were in a pretty liberal environment, so I already made my concluding remarks, I think, <laughs> a couple of rounds ago. But, but, but I'm happy to. No, but the, the, the <laughs> no, 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 definitely, yeah. no, no. I'm so coming to sort yeah. of, you know, uh, um, you know, the questions about uh, public finance. Now, I agree that uh, essentially uh, there are so many things I already mentioned, this whole expenditure on salaries and, you know, and so on that has 
eating up the development budget and so on. So I really think that in some ways it's not a matter of, you know, growth has happened in India in a way because state chose to sort of, you know, uh, not uh, stay away from certain sectors and indeed the whole telecommunication revolution which has of course led to things like the 2G scam but uh, talking about corruption which has also led to sort of you could say that kind of mobile to the people as opposed to power to the people like mobile phone revolution has happened and, and in lots of ways there are micro studies that are showing some of the economic uh, kind of benefits uh, of that. So clearly a lot of this growth has happened in some ways because the government basically chose to deregulate certain sectors and it's not so much it was really government investment in the sectors that caused the growth. But what has happened is of course in other sectors in large parts of the economy like agriculture and, 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 and manufacturing, the growth has not happened and eventually given the various uh, sort of you know problems with the budget including SOPs to the rich, lots of corporate subsidies, you could say kind of corporate welfare type things and a total neglect of uh, or really absence of uh, a good delivery mechanism for primary health and education uh, going back to some of these questions. So, they, But I would not really draw the analogy of the EU budget because that's where basically these are people who are all in the formal sector and technically taxpaying. Whereas in India, there are large sectors of the economy that are simply not within the, you know, agriculture also being that, and that benefits the richer farmers. So that's sort of, you know, and, uh, you know, um, I, I therefore think that really if you ask me in terms of bullet points as to some of the economic, I really think that at some level we should focus and not, you know, try to uh, undermine the growth enhancing aspects of certain policies. But really what the real problem is effective redistribution, effective public service delivery, effective creation of a welfare state, and essentially, you know, and that is where uh, there's an ongoing debate about the India shining guys who think it's a waste of public money and so on, and indeed some economists such as Pranab Bhartan has shown doing some budgetary arithmetic that if you cut, say, certain SOPs to richer farmers, such as fertilizer subsidies, you can actually generate resources that would, you know, essentially uh, enable us to run this public distribution systems and other delivery things uh, quite well. And secondly, most importantly, decentralization. So often it's not so much about the market economy and so on. It's really the centralized government sort of you know, administration, while it has certain good things, but it also stifles certain individual initiatives. So I think decentralization should be a big bullet point. And finally, legal reform. I think in India, one of the shocking things is that you know we have lots of ways of cutting discrimination or injustices, including, but riots in the end are murder. If you have a good legal system where murder is penalized, okay? So if you have, and this is just to take a dramatic example, but also all the extrajudicial killings, the encounter killings and so on. So and coming to more economic domains where you have legal sort of you know processes that prevent say land acquisition and so on, that you clearly don't want to freeze up the land market. But on the other hand you don't want predatory expropriation. And clearly we can learn from other legal systems how to balance the need for transfer of properties. I mean if you all believe in freezing the land market in London we would not find places to live. So we certainly need to have some market transactions in land but what we need to have is protection of property rights. Um, so um, I don't think I'll, I'll tackle the question of trickle-down economics because I've never really found anybody who completely believes in trickle-down economics. You can believe in economic liberalization in the case of India, as I do, but that doesn't mean that trickle-down economics works. Um, the point on primary education and healthcare is, I think, unanswerable. Uh, it's undeniable that that has been the case. They have been completely ignored by successive governments from 1947 onwards. Um, 
The point about corruption and Mayawati statues, I have to say I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, what is extraordinary if you're in luck now is quite how popular those statues are. You read the Delhi media and you would think that Mayawati was the most corrupt person in India. Well, she's not. She's certainly not the richest person in India who's made money by dubious means. And, okay, I mean, she's lost the election. Her vote share didn't go down that significantly. But again and again, you find people who absolutely love the fact that she's there holding the handbag uh, in, the, in the statue with, with Kanchiram opposite and there's Ambedkar reading the book and then you've got the elephant statues and everything. They are, they are popular. Um, obviously, if you're kind of traditional kind of Lucknavi type, you don't you don't like it. But that's another another story. And the final point I'd make is that um, you know this this key question of, of whether uh, democracy has rooted itself in India better than it might it might do elsewhere. Uh, you know, rather in the manner of Nostradamus, Al Biruni about a thousand years ago seemed to predict some form of democracy. Okay, there were you know a few few uh, centuries of invasions, and finally you know you had to get the British out in 1947. But once democracy started, it seems to me that he his his what he said, which is that uh, Indians don't like to uh, stake their life on a religious issue, but they will happily talk and debate about it at great length. Seems to be some kind of prefiguring of the uh, flourishing democracy that we see in 2012. Okay, um, just a couple of observations really. One, um, somebody mentioned the media uh, there uh, and something we haven't talked about at all, uh, which is a fairly invisible but very prevalent fault line, is the growing um, nexus between corporations and uh, uh, television stations, for instance. Uh, Mukesh Ambani has recently acquired a majority stake in TV18, which controls one of the best English language uh, channels on television, and this is just a growing trend. So paid news is a big issue, and I think if there is got to be a, popular, uh, a plurality of opinion, uh, the media which we so far have held to be largely free and fair is going to be severely compromised, and we need to think about that. Um, I can't resist, uh, in fact, endorsing, and Patrick's done that already with, with Mayavati, uh, the issue about Mayavati. I don't it's, it's, yes, you're right that it is, it's, it's galling that uh, there is no understanding of how important uh, statues of Mayavati are to a growing Dalit public sphere. Uh, th that there is a Dalit public sphere that has grown out of having a BSP government is something that most journalists, uh, especially who don't write in any other language but English, they don't understand this. But Mayavati did also lose a lot of credibility, mainly because of her, uh, what wealth did to her and her inaccessibility, and that is what was punished, in a sense, by the electorate. So the, the completely different reasons of what was thought to be ha uh, happening and what happened. About trickle-down uh, economics, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm just, uh, I just wanted to remind us that, uh, you know, we have, uh, say, I think Jamina in a recent piece pointed out a, a comment by Narsimha Rao where he says very, very clearly when he first, as India's Prime Minister, liberalized the economy in, in the early 90s, he very clearly said that this was not about trickle-down economics. It was the social democrat model. And it is that model, I think this is what you were saying, Patrick, as well, that there is a, uh, it is not about growth rates somehow trickling down to alleviate poverty. But there is a very central role of the state, which is, I think, why a lot of us endorse the importance of the state, uh, that the government and the state themselves believe in, including the current government, and arguably even the NDA government, the BJP government. Um, so, um, yeah, j j and therefore the revenues, again, uh, the figures on, on public deficits and so on, 
the revenues that the central government has been able to, the state government revenues or, for expenditure on development have at least quadrupled in the last five years. And that is a, and so the budgets, the kind of money that is available for social programs has increased enormously. So it's not a problem of, of not enough money. That's for sure. Thank you. Um, I'll just uh, focus on one question, which I think raises some interesting points about the separation of powers. Um, because I think that there's a very interesting um, contest going on. And in, in the Indian system, I mean, there isn't a very kind of strict separation of powers. Power is separated in a variety of different ways. I mean, there's obviously the three branches, but there's also the federal and the state uh, separation of powers. And in fact, there's often a kind of blurring of boundaries between them. So you have the, the federal and state division, but then you also have what's called the concurrent list. So there's a kind of set of, 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 of responsibilities and duties which, which extend to both elements. And, and increasingly, I, a number of things to say about that. So I think increasingly, as you've seen, in a sense, the elected elements of government actually not functioning well, you've seen more and more uh, power uh, and, and exercise of power by the non-elected elements of government. So the Election Commission is obviously one example, which keeps uh, the, 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 but the Supreme Court is, is, is another very clear example, where the, the court has increasingly intervened and indeed interfered in, in political subjects, uh, subjects which are